0: Good afternoon. You are listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. This is The Big Tent. I am Justin Vaughn. I'm here with Jen Schneider and Corey Cook. We're all from the School of Public Service at Boise State University. And today we have um, one of our colleagues in, kind enough to join us even though it's summertime and <laughs> us professors value our summer summers off, uh, but Luke Fowler, who uh, is a, uh, an expert in public policy and public administration, uh, who's been a, Boise state for a couple of years now is uh is here we're going to talk about air quality we're going to talk about state primacy and policy making we're talking about fires we're talking about a lot of interesting stuff but before we get into that luke uh welcome to the big tent um and what t- t- tell, tell our listeners a little bit about you and what you do what brought you here
1: all right uh justin thanks for having me on um and thank you for all the listeners for uh not falling asleep during the next few minutes while I talk. Uh,
2: Way to set it up, yeah, Luke. Right. Jeez. Yes.
1: Well, I, too late.
2: Yeah, I've got a good idea
1: what I'm going to talk about, so I know it will likely put them asleep. Um, so I've been in i I've been at the School of Public Service at Boise State for about two years now, and I'm an assistant professor of public policy and administration, uh, and I'm also currently serving as the uh, Master's of Public Administration director, um, which is lots of fun. Uh, if you can imagine being an administrator along with being a professor. Uh, and prior to this, <laughs> I was uh, at a small university in uh, southern Georgia called Valdosta State. Uh, and prior to that, I went to graduate school at, at Mississippi State University. Um, so if you can hear the uh, southern accent through the radio, it's that's why I'm born and bred in Mississippi. Um, and so I, I came out uh, to Boise State because it was just a really great opportunity to join the, the school of public service. There's a lot of really fun, interesting research going on here and a lot of great colleagues. Um, so I've really enjoyed being out here so far.
2: Luke, what um, can you explain a little bit what public administration is for people who aren't familiar with that as a discipline?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there's a couple of different perspectives on what it is. But I'll, I'll say the the simplest way is to think of it as the uh, management of government services. Uh when you think of, of business administration, of, you know, that kind of the, the for-profit sector, public administration is dealing with everything that's not the for-profit sector, which now includes a lot of nonprofits, but also all our public agencies. Um, and so, you know, if public uh, political science is the study of how, you know, groups make decisions in politics. Public administration is how we go out and, and execute those decisions and make things work in practice out there. So a lot of things I, I study is how government works in practice, how we provide public services, um, and how all this, things, uh, this kind of of stuff plays
3: out in the real world i just recorded that for our website so we now have a concise <laughs> answer really to that good. question so. mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> our old our old answer was seven and a half minutes and <laughs> right. mostly involve weeping yeah 15
3: pages of text <laughs> this, that was much better
2: and you did it without saying the word bureaucracy it's <laughs>
1: impressive uh you know to talk for seven and a half minutes but i'm not that much of an expert <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i've got about 30 to 30 seconds worth of things to say
0: we only have 20 more minutes you got to fill luke so uh, <laughs> you're gonna be fine so um so, so you mentioned that you're director of the of the uh, Masters in Public Administration program at Boise State, which is um, uh, growing and uh, well well considered in the region. Um, what do people who maybe join in that program? A lot of them are adults that want to retool or or get promoted or or you know um, uh, enter a different industry, go from the private sector to the public sector. What are the kinds of things that they learn in your program? But but then what are the kinds of jobs they end up applying those skills to
1: uh it's a good question justin and i think it's uh, one of those things that we regularly regularly talk about as a faculty um but i I think the the core of what we want them to take away is the complexity and the contextual issues that go on when it try when it comes to dealing with public services and a really pluralistic uh Society And by pluralistic, I mean, with a lot of different interests, a lot of different types of people, a lot of different needs um, and going out there and providing public services and trying to understand what the public interest is. And that's a, a very vague, abstract concept that's very difficult. Um, so a lot of the people that, that get drawn into our uh, program are those people that are either looking for new careers and want to move up in their current jobs. Um, so I, I think maybe one of the stereotypical people that we get is, you know, maybe somebody that works for, like, the say, the BLM, that they got a, a chemistry or biology degree they spend a lot of time out in the field. And after a couple years, they realize that they're doing a lot more supervision and a lot more paperwork than they are actually like science out in the field. Um, and so, you know, at that point, they might realize that, you know, I, I really need a class in human resources. I really need a class in organizational lo- uh, leadership. I really need a class in finance and uh, budgeting. Um, and so those are the type of things that, that we help with. Um, and so that's kind of the, the typical uh, student that we draw in. Um, and so, you know, with that said, you know, a lot of our students uh, are becoming uh, younger because I, I think uh, from some of the older professors, I, I think they tell me that you know, 20 years ago, we might have only had a, a few students that were under the age of 30. Now we're having more and more students that are late 20s, early 30s, that are more in their beginning of their careers rather than middle careers that you know are that uh, academic arms race the degrees arm race that want to go ahead and get their master's degree so they are in a good position for a promotion when it opens up um, so again we're, we're trying to give them skills to be successful as managers within the bureaucracy um, so they can and I use that word bureaucracy you said it. I, yes I knew, I knew Jen was waiting <laughs> on the edge of her seat for that one um, for them to have the skills that they need to be successful and to lead their organizations in the way they want to be and so
0: what brought you into this field? I mean, how did you uh, wind up uh, doing this for a living?
1: Well, uh, all right, I might give a seven-minute answer to this question. I'll try not. <laughs> I'll try you not have, to. You have one minute. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'll give a quick answer and try not to offend the political scientists in the room. Uh, <laughs> so, when I was getting my master's, I went to DC to do an internship. Uh, and I worked for uh, Republicans at the time because um, I would consider myself a conservative. And I hope that doesn't get things thrown at me in this room or other rooms. Uh, but.
0: Uh, no, Whereas, a fat liberals who can't actually throw things very far.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I worked for them. Uh, and then I left DC uh, largely disheartened because, you know, being there, I realized it It was more about game playing than getting anything done. Uh, so I heard a lot of rhetoric, but not very much policy work, not very much uh, discussion of how all this stuff was going to play out or be implemented. Um, it was just a lot of like, oh, if we say this, it'll or, you know do this. This will play to our base and not really considering the actual policy aspects. Uh, and so I went back to grad school, finished my master's, finished writing my thesis and you know really decided what I wanted to do was the more technical academic side of all of this rather than just go and kind of play more games. And so I, I started my PhD and really focused on policy and uh, wrote my master's thesis and then my district. And, and the administration of a, energy and environmental policies. And essentially asking that question is, how do we manage these resources in a way that's good for our society?
0: Great. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about some of that policy work that you've done and, uh, and how you're contributing on, air, on issues that are right at the heart of the, some of the environmental matters that we suffer w- from and engage with the most here in the Treasure Valley. So uh, stay with us, and we'll be back for more on the Big Tent with Luke Fowler in just a second.
1: Hey, this is Nick from ch and when I'm in the Treasure Valley, there's only one station I can be bothered with, Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9, FM, Caldwell, Boise, but when I'm somewhere else, I stream it online at RadioBoise.org. God bless the internet.
0: Of public Policy and Administration, Boise State University School of Public Service. Uh, Luke, we left off a moment ago. You were talking about um, how you left kind of working in the nation's capital to do more technical work uh, with public, the public policy issues that you know, Americans uh, face every day. Uh, you recently published an article um, that we will tweet out. Within I the will next, tweet it next 24 hours it'll be on our social media um,
2: Big Tent Radio on uh, Twitter
0: <laughs> and if you ask Corey nicely maybe there's an orange bag in there for you
3: it could be we also have uh chapstick and sunglasses and all kinds of really appropriate summer swag from the School of Public Service. Oh. It fills me
2: with follow rage us. because I would like a School of Public Service follow chapstick. Us
3: on, you just have to follow us on Twitter. Okay, I'll do it. Or yeah, write a check, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> I will follow you on Twitter. So
2: Luke, recently
0: you published an article about air quality in conjunction with Air Quality Month on the Blue Review. We'll tweet it out um, uh, later today. But um, to tie the eager listeners over who are now angry that we haven't tweeted it yet, Can you tell us a little bit about what you talk about in that piece and kind of why what Air Quality Month is, why it's important? Uh
1: So, yeah, uh, over the last, let's say, two, three years, uh, what my research has really focused on is the roles that local governments play in managing our air quality. Um, And so why this is kind of an important, interesting time for us to talk about air quality, uh, as I guess last month was uh, National Air Quality Awareness Week, Um, I think sometimes we refer to it as a month, though it doesn't get as much uh, play as what uh, it should, because it's not one of those uh, sexy environmental topics like climate change. Uh, But you know, it's a really important topic for us. To talk about, uh, particularly going into the summers, um, and because and uh, people are outside more, so they're breathing air more, outdoor air more. Uh, not that they breathe more or less air, the winter, <laughs> but they're breathing outdoor air more. Breaking uh, news here on the big tent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh. So <laughs> humans breathe air. I don't know if you know that for <laughs> uh, But they're, breathing, they're outdoors more, so they're breathing air. They're breathing this outdoor air more. Um, but, you know, some other things happen during the, during the summer. One, it gets hot. And when it gets hot, we're more likely to get things like ozone in the air. And that's bad for you. It's, you know, something you shouldn't be breathing in. The other thing, particularly in Idaho, that's important is wildfires. Um, and so every time that you see all that smoke in the valley... It's particulate matter in the air. So when you're breathing those in, um, it can clog up your heart, clog up your lungs. Um, and so it leads to all these like, terrible health outcomes, right? And so this is the, the time of year at the beginning of you know the warmer season where we always try to, or the EPA and a lot of other media outlets try to start talking about air quality just so people are aware that when they're outside on what we call quote unquote bad air days, um, when the, there's a lot of chemicals in the air, a lot of pollutants in the air that you should be aware of what you're, what you're doing. So a lot of what my research looks at um, is what local governments are doing in this area and so the interesting part about the clean air act is that it sets these broad national guidelines for what pollutant concentration should look like in the air but then the states are responsible for making these things happen right so if you have across the country there are 50 states with 50 different implementation plans and we call those state implementation plans sips so every sip is a little different they come with a lot of different rules and regulations but they're all geared at getting to that same national goal of clean air. So some states have put pressure on local governments or at least incorporated local governments into their management strategies, right? Um, And so, you know, a couple of examples is, uh, and so in Jefferson County, Alabama, where Birmingham is, um, they have a special Birmingham SIP um, where they've negotiated special rules for Jefferson County that are different from the rest of the states. Um, you have states like Tennessee where the, the state of Tennessee manages its programs through, say, Shelby County in Memphis. And so Shelby County local managers go out and implement that program. Um, but, you know, what's really interesting is you have places like Fort Collins. And I was just looking at uh, their uh, air quality plan the other day. And it specifically uh, articulates in there, which is very interesting. They go, you know what? There's gaps in the federal and state plans. And when the city going to deal with it on our own. So they're basically saying that, you know, these federal and state programs aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And the city should adapt its own policy and its own rules to go out there and do more. Um, so across this country, you have a lot of different local governments that are doing a lot of different things. And so kind of asking those big questions and what this is, the, what the blue review piece gets at is, you know, one, what are they doing? And two, is it working? Um, and so to that second question, is it working? Sometimes. <laughs> is, is unfortunately the answer. Um, in some cases, we find that local governments are really doing a lot and they're making air quality better, a lot better. Um, improving it you know, anywhere from 15 to 20% over what it is uh, compared to you know, the baseline of just having the state manage it. Um, in other aspects, no, they're not doing well. They're not improving at all over the states. Um, and so there's a lot of big questions about like, how do we make these programs work and what can we do at the local level to make the air that we're out here breathing better and less harmful to all human beings, right?
3: Can I ask you a third question, which sure. is, uh, are, are we learning? Like, are the, are the local jurisdictions in conversation with one another? Are they actually learning from those that are working and those that aren't?
1: Uh, I would say yes and no. Some are, some aren't. Um, and I guess that's a, a great research question to look for in the future. Um, but there's uh, things like the National Association of Clean Air Agencies. Um, and so this is definitely a network, and you have people talking across that. Um, certainly, there's there's air agencies that aren't interested in learning. Um, and that they're just kind of siloed off. There's others that are being active um, that are out there doing things. Now, I'll definitely say, you know, one of the problems when you're looking at at models uh, where, you know, the state is essentially managing their programs through local governments is that local governments essentially become compliance managers. So there's not really room for learning. There's not really room for innovation. They're just kind of stuck doing whatever the state tells them to. Um, So I I would say probably in those those situations, you're not seeing much learning. But some of these other models where you're seeing local governments with a lot of decision-making capacity, a lot of authority, a lot of uh, expertise, they're going out there and trying to learn so they can do better because their entire goal is to you know try to make air quality uh worthwhile you know better in their areas and i'll say um it's also really in the interest of local governments to improve air quality because it's a part of that package of quality of life goods that we talk about when it comes to people moving and choosing places environmental quality is becoming an increasingly important part of that nobody wants to live in a place where breathing the air kills you or harms you right and if you look up uh, any of the pictures of beijing um you can see that where you can't see you know 100 yards down the street nobody wants to live in a city like
2: like that. Well, Sarah Val had a great piece I think in the New York Times today where she said in the west there are now two seasons. Yeah. There's winter and there's fire. And right. so it, it seems to me that in the west in particular during those spring, summer, now fall months, we are dealing with sort of that kind of quality of life issue when it comes to breathing in that polluted air.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that has huge uh, health impacts. And while uh, I guess environmental policy tends to, to kind of get wrapped up in this idea of this moral obligation to the earth and all that, most of our environmental policy is really tied to human health. Um, and, it's, and that's exactly what the, the National Ambient Air Quality Standards are based on, like how much pollution can be in the air and it not be harmful to the people that are out there breathing it. And so when we're talking about air quality, we're not talking about like we want to make the air clean just so we feel like it's clean. It's, we want to make it clean so it doesn't harm people. I mean, there's some great studies about what the Clean Air Act's done, but how much it's produced economically or saved economically from people not having to, you know, either through illness or heart uh, heart disease that's preventing or uh, lost work days because when people get sick, they don't go to work, um, and so it's actually uh, benefited our, envi- our, our our economy in large ways over the last uh, several decades.
0: Fascinating stuff. We're going to keep talking about kind of uh, uh, government officials who are trying to do things, some people happier about it than others, uh, (laughs) with respect to uh, environmental policy uh, nationally and here in Idaho when we come back. Uh, But for now, you are listening to The Big Tent. We're here with Luke Fowler today, uh, and we'll be back in a moment.
3: KRBX 89.9 FM, Radio Boise,
1: where you find your favorite local DJs. Check our program schedule at radioboise.org.
3: Add shows to your calendar, read programmer blogs, browse DJ playlists, get to know us
0: we're back you are listening to the big tent on radio boise krbx 89.9 fm caldwell boise uh, we are here today with Luke Fowler. Luke's been telling us about uh, his work on air quality and, and how it kind of is situated at the uh, intersection between environmental and, and energy policy. Uh, just recently, we had um, the director of the EPA, uh, Environmental Protection Administration, uh, come to Boise, met with the governor. Uh, and among the things that were being discussed that day was the night, this this thing called primacy. Um what does that mean, you know, for the lay people in the audience and in this room? So. <laughs>
2: Easy, Justin. So, <laughs> uh,
1: so when it comes to our uh, environmental policy or our federal environmental policies, what tends to happen is the federal government establishes broad guidelines for environmental contaminants, like what they how much you know pollution that is allowable and all these type of things. But then the states develop their own way of managing these programs. Um, so the states are able to go out and figure out ways to whatever fits their specific context, whatever fits the politics there, the uh, the economy, the you know, sources of pollution, their unique context, and develop management strategies and implementation strategies that achieve those goals, but meet the local needs, right? And so this is the idea of primacy. Um, And so what's very interesting about Idaho is it is one of four states that does not currently have primacy over the Clean Water Act. And so the Clean Water Act, uh, well, it's different from the drinking, the Safe Drinking Water Act, but the Clean Water Act uh, deals with all surface waters. So any like lakes, rivers, uh, reservoirs, these are all surface waters. Um, and so the Clean Water Act regulates how much pollution can be in these. Um, and so right now, currently, um, any permitting for pollution discharges into these waterways goes through the EPI, uh, EPA regional headquarters in Seattle, not through I, uh, the Idaho Department of Environmental Quality. Um, so there's 46 other states where the states the state environmental agencies do this Um, And so Idaho uh, has recently, um, over the last couple of years, started the process to take on primacy. And that's why what uh, Scott Pruitt was in town for was to sign some some documents, basically approve this and uh, and have this process go forward. So over the next couple of years, Idaho is going to continue this transition with the ultimate goal of Idaho is going to manage this program completely in the state, which is very interesting because, again, it is one of a very few states that have uh, not already taken this over.
0: Why why don't we have that uh, authority
1: yet? That's a good question. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of different reasons why. Um, what I think the reason we're currently taking it over is particularly uh, through the Obama administration with more rigorous regulation coming through the EPA. Um, I think there was some local interest that really thought that they could work better with the state agency um, than they could through EPA. Um, and so I think that kind of growing conflict that was going on between local interests here and the federal government is one of those things that bred that. But, you know, uh, Actually, interestingly, Idaho has a um, history of conflict with the federal government when it comes to this. When, you know, and so I think it was 1982, 1983, uh, they basically got mad at the federal government and said, we're not going to do this Clean Air Act program anymore. You're going to have to take it in. At the end of the year, uh, EPA had spent about five times more than what the state of Idaho had budgeted, and they achieved almost nothing. And so Idaho wow. took back on the program. Uh, And so there's this kind of history, and I I think it probably uh, lends itself to that libertarian political culture that is here, where they want to stay out of it. But I think uh, the last couple of years has taught some of the state officials here um, that they're better off being involved in trying to manage the federal programs better locally than what the federal government can do.
3: So how does that matter to your average sort of Idahoan, right?
1: I wouldn't say it matters (laughs) uh, much um, in the fact like you're probably not going to notice a change. Uh, not on a day-to-day level. Mm -hmm. Eventually, hopefully what will happen though is that the administrative processes will get streamlined so there'll be less costs associated with regulating all of this. We'll get better water and we'll get it cheaper That's the hope of all this. Whether or not that's going to actually happen kind of remains to be seen. Um, there's not a lot of research that actually communicates whether or not primacy improves water quality. Hmm. Uh, and actually me and a colleague are, are starting to do some of that research now. Um, but typically the, the argument for all of this is that states know better about how to structure and administrator programs than what the federal government does. So why not let the states do it?
2: I think about those folks who work at IDEQ, though, and they must have some, there's some big changes happening there, I'm sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, if, there's, if this affects anybody, it's the people at uh, IDEC, right, that are dealing with all this work. And uh, God bless them, because I, I know that they've probably put a <laughs> lot of time and energy into this over the last couple of years. And then, again, in the hopes of making water better here and for us to have more control
2: as a state over these programs. And that was a sincere God bless you, not a Southern God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you for making that distinction. <laughs> we have to clarify good well so uh what do you think we have to look forward to then what sort of changes are are coming uh
1: well specifically the water quality um i don't know that's a good question i I don't think we're going to see too many changes up front i think over the long term um the state officials you know those people at idec are going to be able to figure out ways to streamline some of these processes make it easier to identify where pollution is coming from make it easier for us to develop things um there's a you know, dealing with the Clean Water Act, um, Boise uh, has some, some issues there, particularly with the Boise River that goes through, through town. It's going to be easier to, to make some of those arrangements and make some kind of special deals to, to meet the issues that are going on with the Boise uh, River when you're dealing with Idaho officials as opposed to EPA officials in Seattle.
3: Yeah, obviously, Scott Pruitt's been in the news a lot recently. I think every time he does, the word embattled or imperiled becomes before his name. Uh, he's increasingly being uh, critiqued by Republicans. Uh, and, and Republican senators and starting to ca- hear calls for his. Although
2: they like his agenda. They
3: like his agenda, but, but have in fact, to save his agenda, they urged him to. St- mm-hmm. started to hear people calling for him to step down. So, uh, how would that affect this process, if at all?
1: Uh, you know, it, it honestly wouldn't. This is something that started before Pruitt. Um, it's something that's going to continue ever. Yeah. And for the most part, this is an administrative change and not a policy change. So it didn't, I mean, of course, it didn't take an act of Congress. It did take an act of the state legislature. But this is something that started before Pruitt. It's just he's the acting or he's the current director. So he has, the you know, the person that kind of came down. But, you know, that it, it's interesting when you talk about uh, Pruitt's agenda and how— A lot of his personal scandals has now bled into and really brought um, a lot of his policy thing like is created some battles there that uh, I think the Republicans felt like they were making headway in some of the environmental aspects. But now that all these scandals have emerged, there's some questions about whether or not that's going to continue.
2: It is curious that he's one of the um, cabinet members who's sort of been most in the news, most embattled, and yet has held on to his uh, job. So it, it gives you the sense that the agenda really is valued.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, he is, I would say, out of all the cabinet, he's probably done the most to reform his agency. I mean, the, the changes that have gone on at EPA have been pretty, uh, pretty massive. Um, and you know, kind of linking back to the Clean Air Act, I mean, that's one of those way, uh, ways that uh, administratively um, dealing with uh, regulations or administrative regulations that they've developed. They've really uh, the EPA has really gutted a lot of those laws over the last couple of years, uh, or I'm sorry, over the last two years with the Trump administration. So there's been some some big changes that have gone in the, uh, going on in the EPA. Um, though I will say uh, this isn't new for the most part. I, I my Uh, dissertation chair, what worked, spent an entire career at the EPA. And he said, you know, anytime Republicans were in the White House, it was tough times at EPA, then Mm. Democrats would get elected and everything would change. So if there's an agency that is kind of goes with the wind of who's ever control, it's really EPA, because that seems to be one of the most contentious battles between Republicans and Democrats. Mm.
0: Uh, thanks very much, Luke. Fascinating stuff. Uh, we appreciate you making time during your summer to uh, come in uh, and uh, and chat with us. Um, we'll be back next week. I believe we are going to hear from the director of the Idaho Policy Institute, New int- int- institution in idaho that's doing a lot of this kind of uh technical work but on behalf of government uh or, uh, uh g- governments uh nonprofits, and a variety of other entities uh throughout the state that are trying to um solve some many of the problems that uh idahoans like you are facing so uh we'll be back next week and talk about that thanks for listening to big tent have a great day